Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible in your lap or on your phone, would you begin to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 as we close out, as Lorenzo just said, our 12-week series in the letter to Ephesians. After this thing that we called 2020, after a year apart, as I've said time and again, this series has served as hopefully a guide for what kind of community are we going to be on the other side of 2020? Not just as individuals, some of us changing our hairstyle or where we live or what line of work we're in. For others of us on the side of 2020, our invitation has been not just me as an individual, who are we as a community, as the church going to be on the other side of disembodied gatherings, of digital services? What have we learned and what are we taking as we move forward, as we are, as we've said, collective again? Now, over these past three months of study and teaching for me, of our prayer nights, of us being in discipleship groups, conversations that I've had with many of you, I think there have been two primary themes that have come out of our study in Ephesians. Two themes, not just from what's been with us over the past three months, but I I genuinely believe the Spirit is inviting our community into for at least the year to come. It's these two themes of unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. The verse that stuck with me in our time through Ephesians that I keep coming back to, you'll see behind me, is Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, where Paul calls for the church to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, then makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can see behind me with the language of that uh, unity being the underlined words here and the yellow, those languages of maturity, that Paul, right at the middle of his letter, he gives this as the calling and command that everything leading up to chapter four was about and everything in chapter four and on flows from, that we as a community are called to a unity with one another, a oneness of body, a oneness of faith, an allegiance to Jesus, and also this maturity, this equipping, this growing, this maturing in our faith in Jesus. Now, while reflecting on these two themes of unity and maturity as a possible direction for us in the weeks and months and even years ahead, this past week brought a uh, a further confirmation of the deep need of unity and maturity. I was at a Pastor's conference the first half of this week down in Costa Mesa with a handful of friends from seminary and we all getting together. And the sessions like the, itself were really good. What was most, not just like enlightening and helpful and, and really restorative, were conversations with 12, 15 other like pastor friends, usually late at night, like way too late. And we're just having conversations about what in the world did we just live through as pastors? All of us seeing, man, we saw these people leave. We saw these people, you know, up in arms, the digital thing. What has that done to our people? We had pastors from California and Colorado, all around the States, a couple from uh, Ukraine and one from Ireland, having conversations about what in the world have we just seen? And with me kind of being one of the younger guys in the group, I just kind of listened. But the two themes that everybody agreed on that came forward The two things that this past year showed us about at least the American church are these two themes of individualism and immaturity. Underneath all that we've seen in our churches over the past year, the two root bases of this can be summarized in immaturity and in individualism. 
This individualism that leads us to relate to the church through those metrics of consumerism, that individualism which puts our political factionalism ahead of our other relationships, that immaturity which might seem a little demeaning, but that idea of an unguided faith that's regularly being tossed to and fro, sidelined by alternative allegiances and priorities that leads to a faith that's stagnant, stalled, and confused. Individualism and immaturity were the two themes that came to the rise in all of these conversations. And after a couple of weeks of me praying through about unity and maturity, it became clear that exactly what we're called into this next season is exactly what's the opposite was revealed in our churches, collective not being immune from that. And so my vision as one of your pastors, our vision in talking with the other pastors this week is for us to move forward in the coming weeks and months and even years with unity and maturity being our primary focus as a community. This unity and maturity around that calling to be responsible followers of Jesus, responsible family members, responsible stewards, and responsible disciple makers, growing in those callings and unified to that end. And so this is what's guiding us in the next season, as Pastor Lorenzo just talked about. We're kicking off mission membership. Unity and maturity are the driving concerns and, and reasons behind that, beyond just the biblical calling for it. Unity and maturity are those primary themes behind our integrated Bible studies, our discipleship groups, our neighborhood dinners, our mission and service here on the west side of Los Angeles. Even more than this, coming out of Ephesians, so us wrapping up today, where are we going in the weeks and months ahead? We have two more series we're going to be in from now until the Christmas season this year, only two. The first one is going to be right after this, we'll be getting it next week, that we're calling Kaleidoscopic Gospel. Kaleidoscopic gospel is going to be a, a move for us to develop our unity and maturity as disciple makers around this calling to evangelism of having conversations with people that are far from God, training us, hopefully as a community, how to have those conversations, to see the gospel not as a prepackaged uh, um, a spiel or some kind of mid-level marketing thing that we're called into of how do I move you up the... But, what does it mean to see Jesus as the answer to all of our questions? After Kaleidoscopic Gospel, we're going to be going into this fall, a longer study in the book of Proverbs. This being a deep focus on our maturity, us growing up as a community, as a people in wisdom, and a people who understand how to build a life of meaning and purpose and impact, hoping that Proverbs will do just that as we consider the way of wisdom. But we've got one more thing to do. One more section in Ephesians. And so, unity and maturity, that's where we're going and that's where we are today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, please follow along with me. If you don't have that with you today, no worries. That's going to be right behind me on the slides. But we're going to read Ephesians 6 as Paul comes to his dramatic conclusion. And for one more time, every single time you see you, in Ephesians, it's what's called the second person plural. The closest thing we have in English is y'all. The letters of the New Testament were not written to individuals, but communities, collective people with a collective identity. And so we've been reading y'all where the Bible says you, and I hope to catch that. So one last time, let's read a letter to y'all in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, and I'll pray for us. The Apostle Paul begins to end his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that y'all may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that y'all may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which y'all can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that y'all may know how I am, in what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell y'all everything. I have sent him to y'all for this very purpose, that y'all may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. So, Father, we first and foremost are so grateful for this letter and what it's been inviting us into over these past months. We pray that today would serve like Paul intended and your spirit intends as not the closing of this letter, but now the application and carrying it out. My prayer is that as we look over this text, that you may help us as not just a community, but each of us as individuals to discern what it is that you're calling us to in the weeks and months ahead. And I pray like Paul, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, broadly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. God, that I would serve as a worthy ambassador of Paul's words today. And your spirit, as working within Paul as he wrote, would be at work within our community today. Amen. Well, there we have it. Paul's final chapter. He has just closed out Ephesians for us, and he has brought together all of those major themes over these past three months together now in this provocative imagery there at the beginning, this startling imagery of this cosmic battle and armor of the Lord. This whole passage broken down pretty easily into four closing thoughts that we're gonna be looking at today. You'll see it behind me. At the beginning, you might have caught in those first two verses of 10 and 12, Paul details the cosmic conflict that is before the local church. He moves on in verses 13, then through 17, to detail if we are in this cosmic conflict, what does it mean to put on the divine armor, we could call it. He then moves without pause right into verses 18 and 20, talking about the priority of prayer within the community. And then he gives us some closing pastoral words in 21 and 24. So we'll be following through these four points today, looking at each of them, pointing out a few things along the way. The big hope being that we'd be able to see what Paul's getting at after the past months of what he's been detailing for us. So let's jump right back to the beginning in verse 10, 
where Paul begins and looks at this cosmic conflict. Paul wastes no time right from the beginning of verse 10. If you look back to last week, what was he detailing? Talking about these household codes, the very ordinary rhythms of the local church, of kind of our relationships and how we get along. And immediately right at verse 10, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, stand against this immediately kind of shocking, alerting language that Paul comes seemingly out of nowhere. This language of conflict continues where Paul talks about our standing is against. In verses 11 and 12, he says five different ways. These, the devil, the rulers, the authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. Whether Paul is getting into some like layout and taxonomy of the spiritual world, or he's just saying the same thing over and over again. He's driving home this conflict that's right before the local church. A bit strange after the past few chapters. Paul's been talking about speaking the truth and love to one another. He's been talking about the normal rhythms of our church, the normal relationships of our community. And now all of a sudden he starts talking about this cosmic conflict we find ourselves in, of which there's no neutral ground. Paul's seemingly up to something, but what is it? When we lean in on this cosmic conflict language, we find that Paul's not talking about UFOs, how real they may or may not be or even spinning heads with pea soup in the exorcist movies. For Paul, this language of the cosmic powers and the authorities, if you remember back throughout our study of Ephesians, is a way of detailing and talking about the social, structural, economic, political, cultural, religious forces which shape and govern human existence. This is what Paul is looking at when he talks about what our stand is against. But Paul is very quick to note that though the powers are at work within these human structures, the enemy is never other humans. Based off the history of Christianity and the way that they've tended to view their enemies, it is worth highlighting this in your Bible and looking at this again and again. The church, our enemy, is never other humans. Our wrestle, as he says, is not against flesh and blood. Rather, within the biblical tradition that Paul's writing in, our enemy being these powers, these forces that govern human existence, are manifestations of these spiritual beings that are opposed to the rule and reign of Jesus the King. These spiritual beings, these cosmic powers, strange as it may be to us, just to set ourselves within Paul's way of viewing the world, in verse 11 and 12, he details them as being powerful, evil, and cunning. So maybe you're like, I can't believe this. You know, the first time I come to church in months and this guy's talking about demons. Let's just for a moment, let's track with Paul. Let's see what he's getting at. And then we'll kind of return back to the question as it stands. For Paul, he sees at work within the human world, these powers that are, as their name gives away, powerful, evil, and cunning as he describes them in verses 11 and 12. Powerful in the sense that they are at work in powerfully shaping the society and the world that we live in. Those cultural patterns of the world, as Paul calls them. These things to which, as he said back in chapter 2, humans are enslaved. There is some powerful thing at work that is at work within humans, but is greater than an outside of humans. It is me, but it's not me. And the way these powers are at work is in the direction of evil or darkness, as he puts it. They are uh, hell-bent on raising hell within this good world. 
that what their influence on political, economic, all of those patterns of the world, corporate and individual levels, is not in the direction of neutrality or just something other than Jesus, but in being other than Jesus is what Paul says. It leads to darkness. It leads to isolation. It leads to injustice and evil. As we look at our world and it seems like every good thing always ends up leading into some form of injustice or brokenness, Paul would say that's not just entropy at work. That is something that's in the system. Something shaping this world away from life and goodness and flourishing. But the primary way these powerful evil powers work is not overt but cunning as he calls it. Scheming deceitful. They work through shaping our imaginations into another way that none of us, no system and no structure truly is unjust just for the sake of being injustice. No one uh, sins, as one author put it, for the hell of it. That always behind our work is a misshaping, a cunning and scheme of us desiring that which might be good, but going about it in a way that isn't. Paul, using this cunning language here, is likely pointing back to those opening stories in Genesis. Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent, the most cunning of all the animals. This representative in the story for evil and for these powers that work within the world. Who through its deception pulled and tore humanity apart, breaking down humanity's unity and their maturity. And so after this whole letter where Paul's been describing the unity and the maturity of the church, the calling of our community to be the place where Jesus reigns and is at work within his community, the place where the dividing walls of hostility have been broken down between one another. Paul now says, your call is to stand against the powers. Why? Because as we detailed, their whole rebellion is a resistance against the reign of Jesus. And if their resistance is against the reign of Jesus, then their primary place of focus will be on the place where Jesus' reign should be or could be or is most expressed, which is the local church, a community of unity and maturity. And so they will do everything to subvert the church's unity and their growth and maturity. And so the, the crucial thing to note is what Paul is developing here is Paul is not moving on to some weird, like Paul's just getting, you know, sci-fi territory after this whole letter of like really practical stuff. Paul is taking all of that language about breaking down the dividing walls of hostility, speaking truth to one another in love, of that submission and love and service to one another, everything Paul's been developing. He now landscapes and places behind the backdrop of this cosmic conflict at work. This is Paul's climactic warning that in your calling to unity and maturity, this is not going to be easy. There is something that's out to subvert the whole thing. That through their schemes, they will breed injustice within the church community. They will breed individualism within the church in an effort to separate and stall their growth. They will bring deception and conspiracies within the church for the primary purpose of separating and destroying the unity and maturity the community has. They will bring confusion. They will bring a consumerism. They will bring racism to divide and stall the church. Paul says the powers are coming. And their primary focus is going to be to separate the very thing that Jesus has called you to be. They will work to rebuild the dividing walls of hostility which Jesus tore down. 
And one of the ways that they do this is by propagating our belief in their non-existence. Andrew Delbanco is a, um, he's a historian and uh, literary scholar out of Columbia University, not a Christian by any stretch, but he wrote this incredible work. It's a little more academic, but if you're brainy like me and you love this stuff, it's called The Death of Satan. Written by a non-Christian reflecting on what is the toll of, a, of our culture and society's movement to a purely materialistic view of the absence of a transcendent or spiritual, either God or devil. In the death of Satan, Andrew Dobanko points out that when we lose belief in some transcendent form of evil, we put it on one another. If we don't have demons to see, we just demonize one another. And even more than that, we lose the ability to clarify and call something as being objectively wrong and evil because in a material worldview, there is no such thing as objective truth. And so your ability to call something truly evil purely comes down to questions of desire and what you would want versus what the other would want. So for some of us here that, okay, we're talking about devils and demons and this is crazy, that's totally fine. I understand this is an invitation to a completely different worldview. But here we have, even from Andrew Delbanco, a non-Christian saying, maybe that way of viewing the world actually led to an ability to say something and do something about evil. And one that didn't lead to us wrestling with flesh and blood. Now, all this comes together for me, as I talked about a minute ago, is looking at the American church over this past year, what's been revealed out of 2020, and even what I see within myself and within our church, is I hear Paul's words here with a renewed intensity. Because I believe that the church, at least within America, and maybe even within ours, definitely within ours, is that we've largely fallen prey to their schemes. That list of what I just gave a moment ago, churches that breed injustice and covering up their wrongs instead of walking in repentance and honesty, churches that prioritize individualism over the calling to self-giving collective identity, churches that become a breeding ground for conspiracies, churches that become a place where doctrinal confusion is not helped and corrected, but rather propagated and celebrated, churches where consumerism, where racism are prevalent, the church has fallen prey in many ways to these schemes. And after this past year, going into this week, we had a, at that conference that I was at, this night of kind of prayer and kind of just lament over everything we'd seen. And I just found myself shaken up with this deep amount of anxiety and fear, this vision where the church, the bride of Christ, had been beaten into the corner by the enemy. The whole question being, where does it go from here? These whole thought processes, of, as you look throughout some of these places in, in the world where they used to be the historical grounds of where the church was flourishing and thriving, that now, hundreds, thousands years later, we're the ones sending missionaries over there. Sometimes I have a deep fear that maybe that's the place where America is going. But after talking through, praying through this week, that as powerful and evil and as cunning as the powers have shown themselves to be, Paul reminds me at least, if not all of us, that there is a God who is w- d- delights to give the strength of his might to his people. That however it may feel as we look out at the world and where the church stands today, and I don't think I'm alone in this right now. My pessimism about what things look like, if you're, if you're here, you're welcome. Hi, this is a safe place. But I believe underneath all that and deeper than that, 
like I said, that Paul points to the fact that as powerful as the powers may be, the cosmic authorities, the devil himself may be, there's a God who is far more powerful. The question that stands before us here in Ephesians 6 is if, to decide, are we going to lay down and give up? Are we going to play dead and shrink back? Or will we rise up? Will we be strong in the Lord? As he puts it, will we put on the armor of God? Like Paul said, there is no neutral territory here. For far too long, maybe the church has played that way and in the process found themselves wrapped up in these schemes. But the past years revealed we can't afford that sort of immature thinking anymore and that disunified way of living that we're called to something more. We're called to put on the armor of God. And you all are in luck because I am well acquainted with the armor of God. I have been wearing it for years. Um, anybody else, Bible Belt kids that had these? Look, all of my Bible Belt friends, we're here. Um, there I am. Um, bowl cuts were cool. Okay, anyway, the whole point of this is uh, not only because um, I just had this picture and thought it would be funny. Um, I actually wanted to use this picture because it highlights a common way of thinking about the armor of God before we move into it. That's actually flawed from the jump. And it leads to a, us propagating and continuing in our individualism. So when we read the armor of God passages, what we think of them is as these individual little pieces of armor that we each put on. So I've got to put on every morning, you know, my helmet, I've got the sword and I've got my breastplate and here we go. The problem with this is immediately seen in the fact that for Paul, as he's been doing throughout this letter, the armor of God is not something that's primarily worn by us as individuals, but us as a community. Just like we read the y'all, the to take up language, the armor of God, literally the language, all of the verbs to put it on are not like we've been talking about, all the fun like Greek stuff that none of you care about. This is plural language Paul's using. This is to the entire church. Them not all putting on their own individual breastplates of righteousness, but them collectively as the body of Christ, as he's talked about, now being the armored body of Christ. Decked out in what Christ wears. Before looking at the pieces of armor themselves and detailing how these look in our community, two quick things worth pointing out about the armor as a whole. The first to see is that in each of these pieces of armor, of truth, of breastplate of righteousness, sort of, none of these things are new. He's not implementing anything new here at the end of his letter. That's, that's bad writing. <laughs> it's at the very end of the letter. You, you change everything that you've been talking about. This is Paul at the end of his letter now repackaging, reimagining everything he's written in the letter. Each of these pieces of the armor of God, of truth and righteousness, of faith, Paul has been talking about what they look like in the community throughout the entire letter. He's now wanting to shape our perception of the ordinary practices and habits of a church to seeing them as the very pieces of armor which we wear. Even more than that, the armor of God, each and every one of these allusions that Paul gives take us all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah who, foreseeing the day when God would come as a divine warrior in this messianic king figure, would talk about the way that this divine warrior would be dressed and all of these things here, the breastplate of righteousness, this belt of truth, the sword, it all goes back to Isaiah. So what Paul's doing here, notice, is he's taking all of his letter that he's written so far, and he's helping us image it as the armor of God, but in imaging it as the armor of God, he's wanting us to see ourselves as wearing the very things that Jesus himself wears. 
These collective practices are like hand-me-down clothes from Jesus himself. And if it was good enough for Jesus, Paul seems to think it's gonna be good enough for us. For us to dress ourselves in the armor of Jesus. The surprise being that Jesus, as the divine warrior, when he shows up and he wages his war, it was ultimately through all of these pieces of armor and weaponry that when actually utilized, look like humility, self-sacrifice, and even weakness through his cross and resurrection. So when we talk about armor, Paul's not implementing anything new. He's just repackaging the whole letter. And he's pointing us to see ourselves as wearing what Christ has wear, to put on the new humanity, which is being made in the image of Christ. Yes? Do you see Paul's, he's not, the armor of God's not anything new. He's just repackaging and helping us see this through this new way of us becoming imitators of God. Now, so let's go through these little pieces of armor really quickly. Let's see what Paul's developing here. The first he talks about is the belt of truth. The belt back in this day being when you would wear in your armor would help you, you know, round up all of your tunics so you didn't trip or fall, you weren't inhibited. We don't wear tunics anymore, but um, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind, did anybody remember Jinko jeans? I just aged myself. Yes? Did anybody here have Jinko jeans? Yes, yes, yeah. David Herm, of all people. I need to see a picture before the day's over. We need to find one. Um, I remember in high school that there were the guys that wear Jinko jeans, and somebody stole one of these guys' belts um, after, like, in gym class. And so the whole rest of the day, this guy's having to like hike around with his Jinko jeans getting around. He's inhibited. He kept tripping over himself. He was missing his belt, right? So notice what Paul does here is he uses this language of a belt, something that keeps you from tripping or falling over, being inhibited and bound, and he equates it with truth. In this community of unity and maturity, our truthfulness, us speaking the truth in love, as he said in 4.15, us avoiding falsehood and speaking the truth to one another in 4.25, is how we avoid being tripped up and falling. It's by being truthful. This isn't just the virtue of general truthful, like that I'm like, a, that, yes, the belt, what is that belt? Paul's saying the first thing that binds and holds everything together is the church having a posture of truthfulness to one another. We speak the truth and love to each other. He continues then to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, that which defends uh, many of the most critical parts of us. The primary defense against our, our schemes is us being the righteous and just community. This can mean, this righteousness here, both um, who we are as being united with Christ as being righteous and also the righteousness and justice that we live out. One of the greatest marks of the defense of the church is one who has been made righteous by Jesus and is living out that righteousness. So churches that are not walking in righteousness are leaving themselves entirely vulnerable to any of the attacks of the enemy. Do you see how Paul is developing this? The way that we live, the way that we, like, this isn't just abstract righteousness. He's rephrasing this practical way of living. This righteousness being a characteristic of the new humanity back in chapter four. Even more in, in five verse nine, the righteousness being the fruit of light that we're living out of. He talks about our shoes as being the gospel of peace, that which we walk in, and it is a readiness to share the gospel with others, thereby advancing the reign of Jesus. As people come over to allegiance to Jesus, come in faith to Jesus, it is a step back, a pushing against the powers. They are losing ground. So Paul says we walk 
in a readiness to tell others the good news of the peace that God has reconciled us to him through Christ and reconciled us to one another, as he said in chapter two. This is what's motivating us in the Kaleidoscopic Gospel series starting next week. Us maturing in this. Us uh, updating or upgrading maybe our, our shoes. He continues then to talk about the shield of faith. The shield being the front line of defense for the church. What is the front line of defense? The thing that extinguishes the darts of the enemy is our collective, our unified faith, our one faith, as he says in chapter three, in chapter four, in Jesus. That as lies, as conspiracies, as ra- and any of this stuff comes at the church, it is first and foremost our allegiance, our faith, our unified collective commitment to Jesus that shuts that stuff down. The church that has differing faith, differing allegiance within its community has no shield. One of the reasons why I continue to talk about the dangers of an allegiance to the nation more than Jesus is it is to give the church no shield at all, to make itself vulnerable to these darts which the enemy uses to divide. The helmet of salvation, that which defends the most critical part of the soldier and also is used to identify the soldier. The salvation all the way going back to chapter one The good news being in all of this that even when our faith does fail and our righteousness may fall off to some extent, that Christ's salvation for us is still there to defend that which was most vulnerable and even to still identify us for who we are. It all builds up to the one piece of of offensive weaponry being the word of God, the sword of the spirit. The one offensive weapon that we have, the one thing that we not just defend ourselves with but fight back against the powers with is the word of God. We saw this explicitly back in Mark's gospel when Jesus is entering into the temptation with Satan and he's coming to him with each of these different offerings, each of these deceitful, deceitful ways of actually getting what he was come to do. He's come to build a kingdom. And every single one of the enemies promptings were about getting the kingdom in a way other than the cross. And Jesus time and again defends and shuts down the enemy by saying it was written. He uses scripture as the primary form of attack and defense. In the same way, this builds into our collective rhythms of integrated Bible study. This language that uh, the pastors and I, we were playing around with this past week of talking about that personal study being our own meditation on the word, us gathering in Sundays for proclamation, and then us meeting in our discipleship groups as we consider what it means to apply application. This is how we take up the sword. If you find yourself feeling defenseless as a community or even as an individual, I would ask you, what is your relationship to the sword of the spirit? Now, for all this grandiose collective, you know, military language that Paul is using, all the armor stuff, here's Paul's whole point. Paul is wanting you and me to see the cosmic significance in these ordinary sorts of things. These things like just being honest of in our discipleship groups, speaking the truth to one another and holding each other to the, Paul sees that actually as being the belt that binds everything together. When we're singing the doxology together, we're praying that this This is actually the very armor in which we fight back against the powers that are at work within this world. These ordinary, seemingly ordinary rhythms and habits are the armor. They are how we enact and advance Christ's victory and how we resist the powers.
Now, in verse 18, Paul moves immediately and without pause into, out of the armor of God into prayer. Prayer being the comprehensive activity which permeates our collective stand against the powers. Because our victory and even our armor are rooted in the very power and strength of God, as he said back at the beginning, it is God's power which we desperately need to prioritize. And so what does this prioritized prayer look like? Paul describes it simply for us by using these four alls. If you read back through, Paul details these ways of prayer for us as being at all times, all prayers, all perseverance, and all the saints. What kind of prayer shapes the people who are enacting the victory of Jesus? People that are praying at all times regularly and that is a community that's saturated in prayer. Not just in their personal, individual lives, but in our our pre-service gathering, praying in our gathering after, in our response time, our prayer nights, and praying together in our discipleship groups. More than just praying at all times, it's praying with all different sorts of prayer. The fancy words being uh, adoration or thanksgiving, confession or supplication, or as we're teaching my daughter Emma, all the different ways of prayer really easily, is God, love you, thank you, sorry, help. Amen. (laughs) Paul says a robust, saturated prayer life is not just that we're praying at all times together, but we're praying all sorts of prayers. Gathering together to say, God, we love you, rejoicing in who you are. God, thank you for the work that you've done. God, sorry, acknowledging and confessing the ways that we're failing to live into this new humanity calling, and God, help us. Would you bring healing over here? Would you bring the Spirit's empowering work over there? Paul says we need a robust um, the image that just came to mind is like a golf club. We need different, we need drivers and putters when it comes to our prayer life. Paul says that in the midst of all this, we need to pray with all perseverance. We need to keep alert and awake. That in the midst of this conflict, if the primary way they're going to attack is through deceitful schemes, then our prayer life ought to be us processing through our lives in such a way that we can identify and name where those schemes and lies are at work. We need to keep alert, he says, within our prayer life and use it to help us stay awake. And then finally, he prays or tells us that we need to pray regularly for all the saints, that everybody in the church, our, your prayer life and mine should reflect the unity that we share together as a community. And more than just praying when so-and-so is sick or something like this is going on, a regular prayer of God, thank you for so-and-so. God, be with so-and-so. Would you help them in this season? God, I'm sorry for the way that I treat so-and-so. Paul calls for us to pray, not just all kinds of prayers, but to pray for all the saints. He continues in verse 19. I love what, what, it's kind of what Paul does here. Is he talks about, we've got to, okay, church, you guys got to pray for all of these things. Pray for all the saints, all times, always. And then in verses 19 and 20, he kind of goes, you know, speaking of all the saints, <laughs> while you're at it, would you guys keep me in your prayers? Paul asked for the church to begin to pray for him. He detailed his imprisonment in chapter three, but surprisingly, he doesn't ask for them to pray that he be released from prison. There's a whole sermon on Paul's understanding of trials and sufferings and what we should be praying for in the midst of them. But Paul doesn't ask for them to pray that he be released from imprisonment. He prays that in his imprisonment, he'd have the opportunity and boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
Now, in many sense, in reading this, we can see this as something that we should be asking for prayer for each and every single one of us. Part of this is, again, the kaleidoscopic gospel. Our next series is going to be detailing this more. That all of us should be praying for opportunity and boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to those that we come in contact with in our lives and our relationships. But if I can selfishly or maybe humbly ask, as your teaching pastor, that you may pray, even if it's just on the way to church each Sunday and the way to our gathering, that the words may be given to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You would pray that for me. Because as you've probably seen, I'm, I'm in the bit of a, having a moment coming out of 2020. I feel in so many ways ill-equipped with the responsibility to lead and teach and pastor our community. I'm like looking through all of the old history books. Like show me every other pastor who they've lived through like pandemics. And like what do they do on the other side? I feel ill-equipped. And I, and I am desperate for the Spirit's guidance as we move in through the rest of this year. And so I would ask for that selfishly. Thinking about this, let me to remember Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher that lived 150 years ago. He's identified as the prince of preachers. He kicked off this giant revival that took over London, all based out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This revival of many people coming to faith in Jesus. And when all these pastors would come and ask him, what was the secret sauce? Maybe they didn't say it that way, but the secret to his influential ministry, Spurgeon frequently responded, my people pray for me. Even more than that, he, uh, it was at least, at least one time he said to his church, let me know the day when you give up praying for me, for then I must give up preaching. I, I am in desperate need, not only for, for our church to be a place where I'm having this kind of boldness and we're praying, for us as a community to be shaped with this sort of proclamation and work. And it requires Paul links it to, first and foremost, not us being brilliant theologians and really smart people who can answer all the questions, but a people saturated in prayer. And so talking about prayer, or even Bible engagement back with the word, I, I know there are many of you within our community like, like me, that this past year has brought, at best, a disruption, if not an outright upheaval of all of your spiritual maybe practices that you had leading into this year. You're like, man, I was reading through the Bible. I was praying like, you know, four times a day. I was fasting for like, you know, eight days a week. And just COVID, man, now it's just like, I, my spiritual practice is like, you know, eating, you know, bagels over the sink, you know, like a raccoon. It feels daunting and impossible to begin to reboot some of those practices that were so formational for you on the first half of this. And maybe you're wondering, like, I, I, it was like me coming out, trying to rebuild things and the spiritual, I was just like, this isn't, I'm pot, like what, it felt so daunting to just jump right back into where I was. And so I would just encourage you, just start small once again. Start from the beginning. I would say if you just personally start with just a form of daily prayer, we talked about the Lord's Prayer a few months back, of just inviting the, the Lord's Prayer to starting or ending your day with the Lord's Prayer, or even if that's too hard, just God, love you, thank you, sorry, help, and just name one thing of why you love, why you thank, one thing to confess, and one thing to ask for prayer for. Just start there. And to start with getting back into our integrated Bible study, just reading one passage a week, we don't need to go for the Bible in a year, but just one passage a week, meditating and praying on that, bringing that to Sundays as we gather.
Let's, let's see Paul's call the priority of prayer and let's begin to walk back into that. It's not gonna be easy. The past year was a doozy, but I think we can do it. In finals, Paul ver, final verses, after talking about the, the importance of prayer, he then gives us this little closing thing where he talked about Tychicus coming to visit and tell them everything they needed to know. It immediately reminds us as we close this out that this was never written as a theological treatise on what the church is. It was a very real pastoral letter written by Pastor Paul to the church in Ephesus. And now, though he is in prison, he sent his buddy Tychicus to go join them, to read this letter, to pray with them, to tell them how Paul is doing, to do a little informal Q&A about any questions there in the letter. What did Paul mean by like slaves submit, if you remember from last week? That he pulled, oh yeah, this is what he meant by that. That's what Tychicus has been sent. I love these little views at the end of all of Paul's letters that remind us of Paul's unity within the Ephesian church, within his churches, his deep love and commitment to these communities. And as we close out this letter, I was talking with the pastors this week, I think it'd be worthwhile for us to just do this um, myself instead of talking about how much Paul loved the Ephesian church, just to take a moment to encourage and talk to you. Uh, Collective Church, this past year has been immeasurably difficult for each and every one of us on so many different fronts. And on the other side of this past year, the future is messy, it's uncertain, it's scary. There are some of you that maybe are new to our community and you're still trying to figure out what this thing is all about. There are some of you that... That, that haven't been able to find work after trial, after trial, after trial. There's some of you that are back at work now and you hate it. <laughs> There's some of you that feel that deep calling of what it means to be, a, to be a follower of Jesus and you feel just powerless to kickstart that and get that going again. The future feels messy, uncertain, and scary. And I, along with our pastors, we are not immune. All of this keeps, keeps me up at night. Maybe not most nights. I sleep pretty good most of the time. But some nights. But I do, I I find myself genuinely, regularly moved to tears out of my, not just love for those of you that are here, but my, out of lament over the losses that we've had over the past year. Like I said, it feels like the American church, especially in LA, it feels like the enemy has us cornered. And and I think it'd be lying to say anything other than they do. The way that, that we all feel. I want you to know you are not alone in the confusion and the fear and the anxiety you fear about the future, not just of your own faith, but of the church. Your pastors are feeling that with you. But beneath all of my fears, I still wholeheartedly believe in the strength and might of God. A God who in each of our lives and throughout history has shown himself as the one who loves to turn over and reverse the attack of our enemy. He delights in bringing resurrection where there was only death and decay and entropy. He is a God who loves to bring unity where there was dividing walls and maturity in the midst of stalled and stunted growth. This is the God that we are gathered gathered to be with today. If you look out at every single example of revivals within church history, every great move of God, where not just lots of people came to meet Jesus, but lots of people grew up and matured in Jesus, every single one of those revivals came exactly at the moment when everything seemed lost within the church. When culture felt like it had you know, gone to hell in a handbasket and the church had no more voice and no more power and was withering away, those were the moments that God delighted most to bring revival 
seasons after the church had been sitting within and, and connected to deep forms of injustice, with propagating injustice by the church. When the church seemed like it had given up its birthright in the name of power, time and again, this is when out of that movement, there is revival that springs, a new movement of life. Our God delights to bring revival when it feels like there's only death. The greatest example of this was in Jesus' own death and resurrection. And this is the one thing that keeps me going as your pastor. That even in looking out after all the death that we've seen over the past year, I still believe in a God who not only brings resurrection and new creation in the age to come, but lets us taste that here and now. And so collective, out of our unified faith, if you are here and you identify as a Christian because you believe there's something to that resurrection, to put it as Pastor Lorenzo said it, let's do this. Let's, by the power of the Spirit, grow up in every way into Christ. Let's leave behind that disunity. Let's repent and confess our immaturity. Let's don ourselves in the armor of God, in the virtue of Christ himself. Let us put off the old and put on the new humanity. Let's see and name and put off our individualism and our consumerism as it relates to this community. Let's stop assuming maturity in one another just because of the fact that their butts are in one of these seats on Sunday. And speaking the truth in love, call one another and expect that from each other. Let's take on these ordinary rhythms of mission membership, of our Sunday gatherings, our integrated Bible study, our prayer nights, our neighborhood dinners, our discipleship groups, our serving on Sundays, our giving and praying for one another. Let's put this on believing that the God of all power is at work and meets us when we put on this armor. In short, let's be collective again. And so then Paul ends his letter with a prayer for the church in Ephesus. It seems only right for me to pray the same over us. And so Father, God, we're just grateful for this letter and what it's done for us over these past few months. My prayer is that as we now move into a time of response, you would help us to carry this out. God, I don't want the armor of God to be something that I, that I cognitively and intellectually understand or get my mind around. I want it to be something that I experience within this community. And so I pray that you'd help us. We pray like Paul for peace. Peace here among the brothers and sisters of Collective Church and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for grace, grace to be with all of us here who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible.